Welcome to the Press Plane Run podcast, the podcast for runners that don't really know they're runners, put a stick on their trainers, press play and run just in case. Press Plane Run will give me, Ryan, or Scottish runner to some of you on Instagram, the chance to shine a light on everyday runners from clubs and couches across the United Kingdom and beyond. Each week, we'll delve into everything from park runs to playlists, trainers to tantrums and mini runs to marathons. We will look to shine a light on the stories of some incredible everyday runners from the running community and hold them hostage until they pick a track to add to the Press Play and Run playlist, which you can search for and add on Spotify. So whether you're dragging yourself off the couch or taking your first tentative steps in running, or you're one of those weird people in vests at the front of the pack, we look forward to joining you every other week on your long runs to keep you company and entertained. Until then, your only job is to press play and run. Welcome back everybody to episode 4 of the Press Plane Run podcast. I'm delighted you can join me today for my conversation with Jamie Ramsey. But before I get to that, I just want to bring you up to speed really with what's been happening in the couple of weeks since I last spoke to you. I have officially started my Edinburgh Marathon training block, so that's me completed week one. And I've actually decided to go with the Cooper Run Coach app, which I'll speak to you more about in the coming weeks. And I will be joined actually by a special guest who can give us a bit more insight into the app. I had a good first week of my plan, managed to stay pretty consistent and it culminated in a 13 mile run uh, from Broomhouse to Govan where I took part in Elder Park Run at the end of my long run. That's the first time I've been to that course and I had a great time running it with some of my club mates. It's a very flat park run course, um, four loops. I'm not normally a fan of a looped course but it's, it's very flat, very fast and really, really friendly atmosphere so I was delighted to be there and I'm actually looking forward to having a good tilt at that one maybe post-marathon training on fresher legs. It was actually quite a busy one as well because people were completing one of the park run app challenges which I knew nothing about until last week but there's a whole new world opening up here of alphabet challenges and number challenges and all manner of means of things that you can do to bring a bit more challenge to your park run journey. I also had a lovely message drop into my inbox from Run Lanarkshire after sharing uh, one of their posts about the Monklands Half Marathon and Drumpelier 5k so I am more than happy to support a local event by giving them a bit of a plug. So if you're available on the 30th of April, there's a half marathon distance and there's a Drumpelier 5k to take part in. There's currently an early bird offer uh, that finishes at the end of February and that can give you race entry for £15 for the half marathon. Following the early bird offer, that full price becomes £20. There are fewer than 100 spaces left in the half marathon, so I would encourage anyone that can get to the Cope Bridge area and is looking for a half marathon race to take part in the event. I've run it a couple of times before and it's always a really, really friendly atmosphere, lovely local event. So if you can be there, I will get the links in the episode description to allow you to sign up. Whilst I'm in the theme of races, I also want to give a shout out to another local event and that's the Campus Lang Down by the River 10km race. That one takes place on March the 5th and whilst I've run that one before, it was actually on an altered course. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what the normal route is like as a, as a reputation for being a good fast course. So again, I'll add the sign up into the episode description if that's something that you want to take part in. Without any further ado, I really want to get into today's episode because it's a bit of a longer conversation such as the, the fun I was having chatting with Jamie. I hope you really enjoy the episode and I'll give you some reminders at the end again on how you might be able to support the podcast and giving us a shout out and a share. So without further ado, I'll take you into our conversation. 
I'm delighted to be joined in this episode by a man that's racked up more than 50,000 kilometres of human-powered adventuring, including a 17,000-kilometre run from Vancouver to Argentina, a man who was crowned Scottish Adventurer of the Year in 2016, and perhaps most impressively, a man who was kissed in the cheek by Holly Willoughby in this morning. Welcome to the Press Plane Run podcast, Jamie Ramsey. I'd like to say I got kissed by her twice because I went back, so I've been kissed by Holly twice. Yeah, that was a highlight of my career too. Most of us would give up the right arm for once, so twice is starting to show off. I'm already, we're a minute and a half in and I've got jealousy. That's not a good place to be. (laughs) Our conversation today has um, arisen with Jamie. We've been very fortunate to get him onto the show through his partnership with Runners Need and his ambassadorial role in supporting their Save Our Outdoors movement, which we'll hear about more during the episode. But first, Jamie, you have a significant platform and profile in the adventurer athlete community through your expeditions and guest speaking. But for the pavement warriors like myself that balk at mud hills and mother nature, maybe you could start by giving us just a quick rundown of the adventure and highlights since 2016. Wow, since 2016. So I've just got back from running the Americas. Running the Americas has done 17,000 kilometres. And actually, that was quite a great moment because up until that point, I had no idea what I was going to do with my adventuring going forward. So I got back and I was like, I'm not running a marathon every single day what do I do now so I think the first one I did was uh I decided to do the three peaks challenge but I decided to put a Jamie Ramsey touch slant on it so I went up and I ran from Ben Nevis scaffold pike to Snowden with a backpack on carrying everything and just camping along the way um so that was nice that's like 700 kilometers did that in 13 days 23 hours and 40 minutes desperate to get under that 14 days and then I went up and ran the length of the Outer Hebrides. Um, so I started in Castle Bay, ran up. That was an amazing run, being Scottish, uh, even though I don't sound it. Uh, I spent a lot of time on the west coast of Scotland. So getting getting a bit of time to actually run somewhere where I loved was amazing. And kind of went up all the way up to the Butt of Lewis. And then I didn't feel that was quite long enough. So I popped over to the Isle of Skye and ran the length of the Isle of Skye. And then since then, my running career went to multi-day running, trail running competitions, which I absolutely loved. I was working with Gore Ware at the time, and they asked me to go and do like the Transalpine run. Um, and I did that twice. But then I got taken back to Scotland to do the Cape Wrath Ultra, which was, um, I'm sure we'll chat about it later, but that was like my hero moment and the most stupid moment in my running career, um, which led to me, I kind of did a run I ran across Iceland in 2019 and then I haven't really run many adventures since then, but I am. Yeah, I, so I know that you've got something coming up. I heard you on another podcast fairly recently and it wasn't revealed yet. So I'm, I'll wait and ask you later and see if I can find out. But I know that you've also had that sciatic nerve issue and you've been coming back from, you've been fighting through a bit of an injury over the last 12 months or so. Yeah, well, actually, the injury all stems back to the Cape Wrath Ultra back in 2018, where I made a decision to continue when I shouldn't have continued. And it created a... It's really weird because I'm like, oh, I can't, I couldn't run. And then I went on and ran across Iceland, did the Transalpine run. And I was fine, but I just had this thing that was kept coming back and it was just painful. I was running through pain a lot. So I spent a bit of time just diversifying away from the running so I can get back to the running because, you know, I've done mountaineering uh, wilderness um trekking i've done bike packing uh, but the love 
is the running and that's where i want to get back to because yeah. that's the therapy that's the happy place that's the, the kind of pushing boundaries so i'm just look i'm just trying everything to get back so i can be back in the outdoors in the wild in the mountains yeah. uh, and running and most importantly and I, and I think there are parallels there for anybody going through injury regardless of whether you're an adventurer or 5k or 10k is your distance sometimes not running is the key to being able to run again and taking the time to build that strength back up i mean, it's, it, it, it's having the mental strength to be able to not run like because your desire is i want to go for a run and that's because it, it's going to make me feel happy but you know it's going to make your recovery longer so it's trying to find an alternative that will allow you to get a, a kind of modicum of that feeling without injuring yourself further, yeah. which I have to say yoga and turbo training has been really good for me to be allowed to kind of, to keep myself in a position where I can come back to that running. You said something there that I wanted to just tease out before we get to running the Americas, because I think that probably launched your journey off. And I think the story around that's intriguing, but there was already a love of running there from before, before that point. How far back does that go? Where did the running actually begin and how did that progress for you? So before adventuring was even in your mind, where did the running journey start? I think the running journey started in Dunbar in about 1990. No, yeah, 1990, I think. So I was at school. We had the school runs and all that kind of stuff. I was the chap who walked at the back with my best mate, uh, couldn't be bothered to run. And uh, my one of the teachers, I think, saw something in my running and he just ran up and he literally he wouldn't be allowed to do it now but he literally kicked me up the arse and said <laughs> if you don't win this race you're in detention and I was like wow so I just ran off and then I got to the front of the pack and then you know the next year I was captain of the running team and then from then I went on and did tetrathlon and everyone laughs but yes I was in pony club so um I did tetrathlon there and running was always one of my stronger points and then kind of senior school and university running disappeared just went away didn't really do it until I came I started working in London and it became a release so I kind of could run to work which started like everyone's done the drunken sitting in the pub uh Sunday afternoon and then well, why don't we do a marathon yeah. um I was one of those people with like four other mates and that was 2000 and I want to say four and that's kind of when running re-kicked in was 2004. Yeah, that, that's familiar, Jamie, to the people we've spoken to before. That running tends to disappear coming out of school, going into adolescence, and then reappears somewhere on your, your journey. For some people, they've been 50. For others, they've been 25. But there is a moment of, there's always a moment of sitting with your mates drunk saying, I bet you I could. Yeah, well, I can remember we were all just sitting around and it's like, oh, should we do it? And kind of the competitive and the drunk side of me said, yeah, I think we can do this. And we all did club together and we went out and we ran the Stockholm Marathon. Um, and I remember like we all kind of set times. And I, I was like, I'm probably going to be like four hours or four and a half hours, not knowing. And I kind of came in. I remember coming in at just over three and a half hours. And my mates had planned for four hours. So no one else was there. I was by myself. And you run into the old Olympic Stadium. And I remember just sitting down and crying because I just achieved a marathon. I never thought I could do that. Little tear running down my um, cheek, which has only happened a couple of times in my whole career of running. And uh, I can remember saying, never doing that again. 
and, <laughs> and that was just i was just never going to do it that was it i've done tick the box move on but i think as runners who are preparing for their first marathon or have done their first marathon will know that a couple of months later when you can start walking again and you you go out running and then you start thinking could like if you're just over four hours could i do an under four and i was like could i do a 330 so it was like that kind of thing and then it was only 2006 uh, i was back in paris doing another yeah. uh, at my last uh, proper road marathon when i looked at your mileage actually the first thing i did was calculate how many 5k's you'd actually done so 8706 5k's of human powered adventure that's the way i tend to think that's of your just journey on the adventures that's not, <laughs> that's, that's not including no, the that's, that's just adventures that's no that's just the high profile ones i look back at monstrava that would take me pretty much about three lifetimes at the rate i run at the moment <laughs> so that that early love was there but that's a very common start to the journey i think that will resonate with most people and that i wanted to pull that in at the beginning of you were not born an adventurer. You were not, you know, living in the hills and running since your running journey started very similar to how mine has probably started. It's just what you've done since that then separates you from that crowd. Yeah, I would say like it, the the life of adventure didn't start till 2014. I was 34 at that point because I remember when I was on the first day of running the Americas, I didn't know how to use my stove and I only just managed to get my tent up. So like adventure stuff, I wasn't I wasn't um, au fait with. But the running thing had uh, it's very much you were talking like 5K, 10K. So I did that whole kind of 5K journey, 10K journey. Then I did the marathon and then the marathon I did too. And it's like, I don't want to do this again. And it's a little bit like uh, most people will kind of have the same analogy. It's a little bit like taking drugs because not that I take drugs and have never taken drugs, but from what I see in films, uh, but it's like you were looking for that next hit and you want it to be a bit bigger. You want it to feel more. So I did the marathon and then I did the marathon again and I did like a 319 or something. And I'm not competitive enough. I am competitive, but not competitive enough to say I want to do a sub three. That has gone through my mind, but um I was then like, what's next? So then I was like, a marathon through a safari park in Kenya. That seems like a, a natural progression. So, um, and actually I'd be, I've been talking about it for ages. So I'm going to do this marathon uh, in a safari park, um, but only if I can find someone to do it with. And obviously thinking I would never be able to find someone, so I would never have to do it. And then some girl called me out on it, a friend. And I was like, oh, bugger, I'm going to have to go and do this. And then when we went, when we flew out there, she cancelled and then I ended up flying to Kenya by myself to go and do this marathon. But it kind of, that gave me a, a, the next hit. And then on the back of that, I entered into another race, which I think you saying that things have been cancelled. I had the same thing because I'd entered into the, the jungle marathon in Vietnam right. in 2013. And I'd done, I was raising money for the STV appeal um i bought my tickets i'd done all my training i told all my friends i was doing it and then suddenly the, the organizer cancelled a month beforehand and you're like what what tickets to vietnam and you, i had the huff that you're talking about. i got pissed off i was like what am i gonna do this is this is shit um and they were like oh you can go do the gobi march i was like yeah but it's gonna cost me two thousand more pounds to get there which i don't have and it was at that moment that i went no I can still run this 240k run in Vietnam and I flew to Vietnam and I ran it and I think that was the initial spark that led to everything else that's come since then so and do you think that the the, Viet, uh, the sorry the original trip when you were going to run with someone 
and you end up having to do it yourself? Do you think that plants a seed somewhere in your head? Like, you know, this is not dependent on other people? Yeah, I think, I honestly think, I think back on it a lot. If I had gone and done the original race with people as a competition, I would have probably come back, gone back to work, and then booked into the Marathon de Saab or something. Yeah. You know, I would have gone for another one of the same ilk. It was the having the brain switch to go, right, okay, we're not doing this as an organized thing. You're doing this by yourself. Now you're going to go out in the middle of nowhere. You're running with a backpack that's got, I had my flip-flops and all my holiday kits. <laughs> I booked a holiday at the end of the run, of the end of what was going to originally be the run. So I had to carry all that stuff in my backpack. So I like a 15, 20 kilo backpack on. Never run the backpack before. And then it was that getting to the end of that, that and it kind of ignited this fire inside me like, and, and recognition that, wow, if you put your mind to it and you just do it, you can achieve big things. And I think that if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have gone on to do all the other adventures I've ever done. Yeah. And and that takes you probably to the, a very pivotal moment in your life, not actually maybe the most pivotal moment in your life when you make that decision with running the Americas. And I think I, I've watched a lot of your YouTube content and I've seen your profile, so I'm aware of it, but I think it would be very worth sharing just for a couple of minutes where you were and maybe mentally at that point when running yeah. the Americas goes from being maybe just a, a seat to I'm going to do this thing. Yeah, it was, it was kind of, and it, it was just a turning point. It was like, it could have gone either way. So I'd just come back from the Vietnam run and, you know, I was charged with all this positivity and I was like, look what I've just achieved. Look how happy, content, fulfilled I am. Um, even get to the point where I'd say I was proud of myself for what I just achieved. And that would be a glorious point to say, and then I went off and did adventuring, but I didn't. I was weak. I went back to my job and I sat in this nine to five that I didn't want to do. But I didn't want to do it. And I was disappointed because I wasn't doing this other thing. So I guess there was a kind of um, underlying stewing away of anger and resentment. And then I was reading books by like Ben Fogel, Sean Conway, Mark Beaumont, um, and looking what they're doing. And go, why are they getting to do all this stuff? And then the kind of frustration of all this probably led to me being even more unhappy, which led to me like being fanatic at training in the gym. And then even more fanatic and dedicated at getting pissed afterwards in the pub and like doing mass drinking and mass exercise and then trying to have a job which I didn't like. And then it all kind of came together one night where I kind of went out, got a bit lashed and thought it'd be a good idea to sleep in my office rather than go home. And like when you wake up on the floor of the office shower room and look into a mirror, you kind of, if you look in the mirror and you think that's normal, then that's a problem. But if you look in the mirror and go, Christ, what am I doing? And it was that moment of what what am I doing? The recognition of the unhappiness, the recognition of the de direction I was going with all the kind of like overly over the top exercising, over the top drinking um, and how unhappy I was. I just managed to I stopped, thought, when was the last time you were happy, content, fulfilled, proud? Did you like yourself? And that was at the end of the Vietnam run. And it was like right i need to get that into my life that back otherwise this is going to go in the wrong direction and uh i was lucky to be able to do that and i'd love to say i just like quit my job and then went off and did it but i really didn't i i sat around in my job for that so this was november that happened and then it wasn't until april that i had 
quit and then I had to work out my notice and like I agreed to stay till July so it was, it was nearly a year it was like nine months until I actually went out and did my adventure but I finished my job on the 28th of July and I was standing on my starting line in Vancouver on the 14th of August or something. So yeah. I was like two weeks later, I was there. But even that time lag between deciding and getting there, that's not that long an amount of time when you take into account dealing with other people's feelings and emotions and those close to you because it's such a, I think everybody's been to a point, usually unless you're very fortunate in the job you do, where you get that fulfillment. Um, where you hit a point in a job and I've been there myself and made a change a couple of years ago where you're thinking, why am I doing this? I am working, I'm giving everything to an endeavour here that's not benefiting me in any way except financially, at which point I'm too tired to even care about money um, because yeah. Yeah, I'm bringing in more, you've got the house, you've got the kit, but, but so what? Because I'm knackered, my family don't get the best of me. So I think everybody gets to that point. The bit that they don't get to is okay, here's what I'm going to do about it, because it's scary. So how did the people around you handle that news from from a work perspective, but also personally, here's what I'm going to do? From the work perspective, they were actually, when I said I was quitting, they were obviously a little bit worried that I was going to go off to another firm. And then when they found out I was going to run from Canada to Argentina, they were like, oh, okay. And they actually, like, to be fair, like my bosses, are nice people and they therefore they looked after me and they tried to, the, to make the transition as easy as possible they obviously wanted me to carry on working a bit longer to make everything easy for them but they kind of helped me in other ways and then with family like I always start by telling well less so now but back in those days I would tell people I'm going to do something but I tell peripheral people and then move up the chain towards the kind of parents in the center and everyone along that way were like I was telling them what I was thinking and they were like if anyone can do this you probably can. And I was like, wow. And, I, and it's something I still struggle with today because I will say to people, I'm going to, I'm, I'm thinking about doing this thing. And everyone's like, yeah, you can do that. And it's like, well, I don't, why don't I believe that? Everyone else believes mm-hmm. I can do it. Yeah. But I don't always believe I can do it. So it's having that support and having people tell you that you're, that you can do it. And then I kind of got to my parents and I wrote an email to my dad saying, this is what I think about doing. And he just came back saying, you've got to do what you've got to do. And it's that, it was, it was a bit of a realisation. I had a conversation with my father afterwards, and it's something that a lot of people relate to, I think. I My whole life up to that point had been what I thought other people thought I should do. So I'd gone to university and done economics. Like, I have no passion for economics. I went to London to get a city job. Like, look at me. I am not a city person. Um, I never, I'm not, I don't have a desire for money. So, like, I like a comfortable life, but I don't, I don't want to drive fast cars. I don't want to live in big houses. I don't want to yeah. go on fan- fancy holidays. It just doesn't, that doesn't drive me. So I was doing all these things because I thought that's what my parents wanted me to do. And da, 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 da. And then I spoke to my dad about it. And I kind of said, this is what I think. And he went, I have never told you to do anything in your entire life. Like, apart from work hard and yeah. try everything and da, da, da. But he never said, go and work in the city. He never said, he just wanted me to be happy. And he even said he said if you wanted to be if you want to go and be a fencer and yeah. work outside go and be a fencer if you want to do whatever you want to do just go and do it and uh no i kind of thought back went, actually he had never told me no and it was all in my head and i think a lot of people um think this they kind of think that they're expected to do stuff and i think once you learn and you have the support of people to kind of 
let you know it is all right. But you learn that people only want you to be happy. Yeah. And your family only want you to be happy. Your work people want you to be happy. Most people actually just don't care because they're dealing with their own internalized version of that exact uh, journey. Yeah. I I did the exact same. This like this is resonating in a complete. I end up going through a career as an education all the way to being head teacher without ever really knowing why or. But just because it was almost like, well, you're doing well here. You're just expected to, and then I look back after making the changes. Nobody expected me to do that. That was me on a made up fabricated timeline to please some phantom made up expectation. It's. It's a wild thing, but I'm sure you've spoken now, Jamie, around the UK, around the world. I bet, I bet you that story is resonating all over the place with people. Yeah, it does. And weird thing is that we now live in a world of social media where we all sit here that thinking that everyone cares about absolutely everything we do. And I really struggle with it because I, I could be cycling across America and I kind of like, why would anyone want to know about this? They're probably worrying about in this time how they're going to pay for their mortgage. They don't care about some dude who's gone on holiday cycling across the country. Like, because in my head, it's I think it's like a holiday. But that's it's so it's so interesting that you're going through in London in the exact same completely different context business wise, but it's just the same thing. Mm-hmm. You're fulfilled by the wrong things, or you think you're being fulfilled by the wrong things, yeah. and you make a change. But until you take a leap, a leap that I was worried about telling anybody, and everybody just went, "All right, good, that's good. You'll get a bit of life back." And I've been sitting sweating it for weeks and months, thinking I'm going to stop being a head teacher now. Everybody's going to be disappointed. Yeah. Not so. In fact, the opposite. People are saying. Thank goodness you'll get a bit of you back and you'll it's wild. It's just what was already in my head though. Um through not verbalizing, not speaking to people and just making assumptions. It's that's a lot. Yeah, well one of the things one of the things I um uh found was just before I left, I went to a fundraiser for the charity Calm, which is the campaign against living miserably, to the yeah. male suicide charity. And I ended up raising money for them, but it wasn't because I'd been to a dark place, which a lot of people assume. It's because I'd made this change out of a life where I was unhappy and was trying to forge this new way. And then I went to this fundraiser and I was like, wow, there's this whole problem that I did not know about. Because 2014, people don't talk about this kind of stuff, um, you know, where people feel trapped and they're taking yeah. their lives because they don't feel they can talk. They don't think they, they, they can't make these changes in life or they don't have the support or they think they won't have this support so you know I, I started uh supporting them back in 2014 because i think yeah. people need to be and i'm not saying especially men but people need to be told that you can make changes you can show emotion you can even though i'm not good at it um you can ask for help so you know that's a good message that needs to be put out there and uh, yeah and i've seen that that through my career on how that's changed the support in and around mm-hmm. mental health and speaking and dialogue but i've also been surrounded by the poverty the issues and the the mental side and the struggle of life that that leads people into that so it's i'm all too acutely aware and i also know the power of exercise and so many people of of that being the redemptive thing in their life and i don't think you have to be on a mountain anywhere to do that some of it is just being outside and not living in your head and so the world has moved on a lot since 2014 but there's Mm -hmm. still more to do undoubtedly oh yeah much more, much more um so you find yourself then starting uh, or on the starting line in vancouver with a baby stroller which i've seen pictures of which i find i still find pictures and videos of it hilarious when i see it because i just keep thinking of people running past me in park run with an actual baby in that <laughs> and you're and pushing I, and, and a lot of people thought i had a baby in it so i'd get like sometimes i was running down highways I yeah. remember in mexico with someone like 
going past going, you're a bloody idiot. Like, <laughs> and I was like, there isn't a baby in it. Come on. You um, can so pots and pans. I had a little sign on it that said baby not on board. Yeah. Although you did have a teddy bear on it, so that could have confused people further. Yeah, oh yeah, Carlos the bear, he's upstairs. Yeah, yeah. And you found him, am I right? I found him on the side of the road in Mexico, yeah. yeah. And uh, he became my, uh, what's the name of the, uh, the, in the Castaway film? He came, whatever that is. like Wilson. My, my Wilson. So I just kind of chatted to him and like, it's cool. It was nice having something, uh, something that almost resembled a human being on your, because you are alone for a huge amount of time. Your your distance on average, you were running just over a marathon a day over over a year. You already are clearly were a, a, an, an experienced distance type athlete. You've done work, but you're not a distance athlete to that extent. Nobody is where you're putting your body through that level of strain. And as you just told me, you didn't even know how to work your stove or half the things you had with you. So how steep was the learning curve over that first two, three weeks? of trying to cover the distance and live. So there was, a, there was over the whole trip, there was a, a really interesting kind of lesson learned because at the beginning, I was very much like five days on, two days off, 30 kilometers a day. That's what I told myself I would do. And actually someone in a podcast recently said, what, well, you were trying to basically replicate a work week. And I was like, well, subconsciously, I must have been doing that. But then I kind of realized very, very quickly on that strategy that if you tell you, tell yourself, I'm going to do this every single day, then that is all you will achieve is that. Because you say, I'm going to do 30K, so you run 30Ks and you stop. And I learned really quickly that maybe, you know, I that either running 30Ks every day is going to be too much and you're going to injure yourself trying to keep to this target. Or you're actually better and you can run more. So by running, sticking to this 30, you're inhibiting yourself of your true performance. So when I look at the distances and the days I ran, at the beginning I was running 40 odd kilometers a day, taking days off here and there. Um, and that kind of doing that week by week, the last 28 days of the adventure, I ran average of 58 kilometers every single day without taking a day off, which is something like uh, seven or eight marathon to Saabs back to back um, in 40 degree heat. But I was enjoying that and as comfortable doing that as I was at the beginning. So we always have these perceived like we can only do this much or you know it's not but like it depends how much work you put in depends how much you do something yeah. every single day your body will adapt you know running when i by the time i got to like uh chile i was actually finding the distances really easy so it's a kind of weird but, but the lesson was never limit yourself to or never set a target if you set a target that is all you will achieve yeah. um but there was a moment i remember day three I got so I didn't have I couldn't afford to get to the end of this adventure. I couldn't afford to buy the kit I needed, so I was running in uh, Adidas Adi Zero Marathon like shoes, like oh, like it's just insane. But I couldn't afford to buy new trainers. So on day three, I got plantar fasciitis, and I was like, "Have I just quit my job? Got rid of my flat? Like flown to the other side of the world, and then got injured on day three by stupidity from like not." gradually building up the distance uh luckily i had another pair of trainers and i had a pair of insoles and i just kind of moved the insoles from one shoe to the other shoe and just kept on going like that but um yeah i did that was a steep learning curve on like body preservation and like 
um, and mental management. And- Some of that flies in the face of anything that you would ever read online about what to do to your body and rest days, this and, you know, I'm thinking about marathon training plan at the moment, deload weeks, and but the human body is capable of so much more when you test it, if you're willing to test it. Yeah, you it is. But also, like people try to, and I'm not saying that's what you're doing, but people try to compare what I'm doing to running a marathon, and it's a completely different. So what I'm doing, there's no time level, there's no timing attached to it. I've got a whole day to cover the distance. I can do 10k stop, have a rest, do another 10k stop, have lunch. Um, so your body is not. I, mean, I was trying to average 10 kilometers an hour. Yeah, that was where I was aiming because I knew 10 kilometers an hour. Would, I had plenty of time. And then I learned that if you start early in the morning, you finish by lunch, you've got more time to recover. So even though it sounds like you're running every single day, if you get it done early, you've got so much time to recover for the next day. Yeah. Um, and you're not trying to push when you're doing marathon, you're trying to push, you're trying to get times, you're trying to be sustaining a, a speed. So, um, and no, I think yeah. for me in my head, it's more akin, my own experience, it would be more akin to having done the West Highland way and trying to squeeze that into four days or of walking uh, if you're not an experienced walker but even that was a grind my feet were in tatters after that now i hadn't probably prepped in the way that you should because again guys sitting drunk in a pub come on we'll do the west highland way i was your man and i think i was out there you're talking about the trainers you had on i'm sure i had on a pair of like fashion type nike trainers not even designed for running just for completely clueless as to what you're doing and my feet were in tatters but the grind of getting up every day that's the bit that i'm at at the beginning for you i'm like how do you do that how do you get up every day and know i have to lace these up and go again well i'd say i have a on my website i have it on my homepage just to remind me um is i have this line which is um, when i find things tough i used to sit down think about the life i used to lead and then i would get up and carry on and that whole thing was so i worked in the city i made a decision to be running across two continents it was obviously going to get hard and at any point i could say right i'm done and go back but i would have to go back to that life i hated so when times got hard when things got bad you know i just would remember that and tell myself this was your choice so back yourself keep going keep going and that helped a lot it also helped that and this will be so maddening for all the people People who are training for a mar- marathon right now i don't think i got a single blister on the whole trip like, nah, i've heard you saying this before i don't even think i believed it when you say that that's yeah, wild no i didn't get one but i think that comes down to slightly my running um running kind of way i run and also the socks i use or like i think for anyone out there let's we're going to do some runners need stuff let's you do know, that get get the right trainers and get the right socks and it'll make a massive difference because if you're running crap trainers or the wrong trainers you're going to get injured and you're going to hate it and it's not going to be fun so if you go and do like a gait analysis like i i did a video the other day because i am so guilty of it you walk into a running shop and there's all these beautiful colorful shoes you want i want the beautiful colorful ones but they're not probably the right ones for you you need someone to say that ugly pair of gray ones with those fluorescent things they're the ones that are actually going to help you run buy them because then you'll enjoy the running you might not look like you want to look but you're going to enjoy your running and then you're not going to get injured and then you're going to have a much more yeah especially at the moment and the the, literally in this financial climate that we're in at the moment these things cost a lot of money even for a cheaper pair you're paying for a lot of money if you buy the wrong pair 
you're burning through resources that you don't need and that is part of that save saver outdoors movement of not shoes not ending up in landfill i've been terrible for that you know i've went i won't name brands because that's unfair it's been on me i've gone out and bought what i thought well they everybody's wearing them they look lovely and they're just far too spongy for my running style for my feet and they get 40 miles and i either have to give them away or chuck them out or and it's just there is a lot of waste involved in running as well it's a lot of waste it's a lot of money you're also going to probably end up having to pay for physio which is then even more money so like and then you're going to buy foam rollers and then you're going to buy like the money stacks up but one thing that is worth pointing out and it's not all the time but i think most of the time that runners need if you take your shoes back and recycle them they give you like 20 quid off your next pair so and that way you're being that means you're being responsible and you're saving money so that's like a and I'm, I'm massive about making sure people are not wasting kit. So when the kit's worn out, there's a recycling scheme to give old running shoes a new lease of life and stop them ending up in landfill. So that that is a, a good scheme. And I've noticed actually in a lot of your partnerships, there tends to be that thread running through them of businesses that share your values. Oh, 100%. I don't do it for money. I don't do it. For, like, I, I think a lot of people look at my adventures and think, God, he's really lucky that he gets paid to do all these adventures. One adventure... Of the whole of my adventuring, I think, was paid for. Like I've paid for every single. I paid for the flights, the hotels, um, all that kind of stuff. That's all my money. I have partnerships with great companies who give me kit very kindly, and and then I have I work with amazing people like uh, Runners Need and Cotswold Outdoor. But I work for them when I'm not on adventures, yeah. and then I use the money they pay me to pay for my adventures, and yeah. they they're such a great brand because both the brands are great because they don't tell me what to do they just tell me to go and follow my passion and do stuff yeah. and then they support me and then i hopefully can use what i learn tell it to other people so when they do their adventures it's better and like for me if i could help someone or inspire someone to go and do an awesome run then that's better than getting paid yeah but no, I, I respect that as well because there is a an onus on you to you do have to pay for these adventures and you are doing it out your own pocket. So there must be a temptation sometimes to think, oh, I could take the easy money there. But if they don't align with what you believe, there is a there's something admirable in that. I think it's it's a tough one because I know you're probably always itching to get out in that next adventure and you have to fund it somehow. It's not free to go to all these places. No, it's not. But actually, one of the things that I think... Um is a realization that I'm having now is I have obviously thought, right, let's go to Mongolia. Let's go to Iceland. Let's go to South America. Let's go to America. Bam, jump on aeroplanes, fly places. And then I'm like, wait a minute. It's like, if I just went left my front door and ran, I'd be in the most amazing places that I've never been before. So why travel so fast? So people will notice that my next adventure is France based. The adventure after that hopefully will be UK based. Um, I'm not going far from places. Your run around the Hebrides looked actually just as challenging as some of the more remote landscapes that you've seen that looked like a real challenge. But it was it was a mate. I loved the Hebrides. And do you know what? I don't plan my adventures. Never do. Never have. Never. Probably never will. I ran the whole of the Outer Hebrides on a road, not knowing that there was a freaking trail. And I was like, I could have run a trail up the Outer Hebrides if I'd only planned it, if I'd actually looked it up. I just went, I think, went, Castle Bay, there we go, run up. And then I did one bit of off-road, which was hysterical from like Stornoway up to the Butt of Lewis. But I mean, there's you know, not I planning wish... a run and then there's just abject negligence of not looking at a map. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, I kind of was talking about this yesterday. As I'm a big like I'm a big believer of plan less. I'm like an adventure is an adventure because you don't know what's coming. So obviously tick off safety, like make sure you've got your right the tracking devices, make sure you've got the best kits. Like I I've I think one of the one of the things I see is my job is I have done this journey without anyone telling me how to do it. And I've chosen the wrong kit the whole time, the whole way, and wasted so much money and have like a box of kit which I don't use because I didn't know what to buy. So now like it's about plan the safety, plan like tell people where you're gonna be and have check-ins and then write the right kit and then just get to the start rough idea where you're going to go and just enjoy the adventure yeah. like because if you don't know there's a waterfall around the corner you're going to be so much happier when you see the waterfall yeah. than if you have this built-up expectation of what the waterfall might be and then you get there and it's smaller and you're like oh, it's not quite as nice as i was thinking like you've just ruined but if you don't know it's there it's like the wingers of the world are rejoicing at this message <laughs> T- tell me the three most useless pieces of kit that you took in that stroller to begin with um I would say I used most of it, but I would say that the like if I look back now, I had I had a super dry hoodie. <laughs> Why would you carry a super dry hoodie? The length I still got it. I took it all the way from Canada to Argentina. Um, I used a Trangier stove, which is one one of the most iconic, amazing stoves, but not what you take on a running adventure. You take like a a small jet boil or something like that. Um, and one of the things that I've, I've wasted the most money on over my r- whole adventuring career, sleeping mats, like I bought these massive chunky sleeping mats and I've gone from like this big to this big to this big. And I obviously ended up with a Neo Air Thermarest X-Lite thing, which if I just bought that in the first place, it's, it would have lasted. You can repair them. Like mine's got a uh, little uh, tenacious tape patches all over it. Yeah. It still works. Um, if I just on for that first i would have only put one bit of kit not four bits of kit and the combination of the other three bits of kit is more than what the original one yeah. to that but then i think one of the funny stories for when i was running was i was in um i was in guatemala and i ran past this family and this dude came running out with his wife and kids I'm like oh what are you doing I was like, oh, i'm running to argentina he was like oh my god wait i'm gonna go and get something to give you for good luck and he went into his house and he came back out with a coin like a wood carved coin about the size of like a very big plate but <laughs> and about an inch thick piece of wood carved of, it'd be like someone giving you a 5p piece but like carved yeah. on wood and he gave it to me i ran all the way from guatemala to panama pushing this piece of wood just because i felt i couldn't throw it away and it now hangs above my fireplace in my living room here's your prize is an extra 20 kilos to push up that road <laughs> Yeah, and when you're doing some of these runs, like when I was, I ran across the Andes, that's uh, 4,830 meters. So that's higher than anywhere in Europe, pretty much, not, if you're not counting the Russian part. Um, I was pushing a 50 kilo stroller up a mountain. It's like just insane. And to a, back a, the wind on that trip as well, watching you trying to move, uh, you had it at your back for a while, the wind, but. That was extreme. Like you could hardly even speak to camera. It was that windy. Oh yeah, and you'd, and quite often in deserts, you've just got sand blowing into your face. And um, but you want that. Like if you're doing an adventure and it's all easy, and you come back, like no, I don't want that, people Jamie. Don't care. I, I people want don't, to watch. Don't care. 
I want to watch people like you doing that. I don't want that. This is the bit where I, this is why I'm speaking to you because I don't want that. I don't want the wind ever. I live in Scotland. I've had enough wind for a lifetime. Um, you mentioned safety and again, having heard you speaking, a, f a couple of, I think you, you took a sensible route in as much as minimizing the number of languages and culturally you've got a good sense of where you were going on trip number one, but there, there, there were a couple of moments and I saw that you, you needed a police escort at one point or you were given a police escort at one point. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, that was the Satura Desert in northern Peru. I was so I was running down. Where was I? I was in Mexico, and I met these uh, cyclists, and they were doing this adventure called Pedal South. And it was like a, a videographer, a photographer, and a writer, and they were cycling down. And a few months after that, I like when I arrived in Peru, I got a message from the guy saying, "Right, if you're going to the Satura Desert, you can't go. Don't run from this place to this place because it's like 200 kilometers of nothing, just desert, and we got held up at gunpoint." And they ran away, they got shot at, they lost all their bikes, everything. So I looked at the map and I was like, yeah, there isn't an alternative. That is the only route is to go through this this bit. So I was leaving the town and there were like women and children looking at me and they were like, like running their fingers across their throats going, you can't go out there, you'll die. And I'm like, oh my dear Lord. And it's the first time on the adventure I can remember thinking, well, wow, this is really selfish what I'm doing. Like if I die, I die who cares like I'm I'm not gonna it's not gonna bother me but my mum my sister my dad my brothers like family friends they're the ones that are gonna have to pick up the pieces of my stupidity and my lack of regard for safety but I had to put that out of my brain very quickly and just pushed on pushed on came to this uh police blockade and uh the policeman I was like guys everyone says I'm gonna die and they're like no you'll be fine and I was like oh cool so I just carried on running and then about 20 minutes later, they come up in a police car and they say, actually, on further thought, we think you might die. So I was like, ah, OK. <laughs> um, so they then said, we'll give you a, a police escort for the rest of the day and then we'll come back tomorrow and pick you up. And then we'll get another police from the other jurisdiction to come and meet us. And so I was like, brilliant. This is amazing. I feel safe now. So I, the only problem is that they would like tell me to hurry up. So like I'm pushing the stroller into a headwind across a desert um, and they're leapfrogging me with their car. And like going, come on. And I'm like, I'm beating fine. 60k on the first day. And I'm like, oh my dear Lord. And then they get to this deserted petrol station. They say, sleep there. So I slept there. I'd be joined by a cyclist. And he was taking advantage of this as well. He's a friend I'd met multiple times on the trip. And then at seven o'clock the next morning, the police were there. They were like leapfrogging all day. We decided we found this tiny little shack. So we paid for them to have lunch. And then they just left and they went, right, this is the end of our zone. And then the no other police. And was like, wait a minute, you just told us that we might die here and now you're leaving us? Like, we were fine when we didn't think we were going to die. So then that next day I ran 79 kilometres, which I think was the longest I'd ever run at that point. Uh, and I arrived at this tiny place where I'd met up with the, my cycling friend. I sat down, ate some food, woke up the next day, the worst diarrhea in the world. So I was like, oh my God, I might die by bandits. And now I have diarrhea and I have to run a marathon. So there's no water, no food, marathon running. And you just like, oh, it was hor horrendous. And then buses, like I'm British. So every time I needed to go to Lulu, I'd stop on the side of the road, then run like 500 meters away from the road, do my business, run back again, carry on. 
by the end of that day, I was just dropping my pants on the side of the road, waving to cars <laughs> as, as just liquid poured out of me. Um, but you know, it's it's the sense of achievement when you get to the end of that that makes you feel like proud. Because like, if that had been an easy run, it'd have been fine. But it's all the things I had to overcome on that short four day period. Actually, I look back on now. It's what people ask me about it's what i kind of smile when i think about it so who would have thought shitting yourself on the side of the road is a thing you feel proud of at the end oh my god some of the stuff that my body did on that run i my body has fired <laughs> further than i like when you're desperate like you're, a penguin you're pushing a baby you're pushing a baby stroller and like it's got your whole life in it so you can't leave it so you just like stop on the side of the road, run down to a bush, pull your pants, and you've been holding on for as much, and then suddenly just oh my god, uh, the body I, does some amazing stuff. Runners, runners love a poo story as well, though. That's this old. Yeah. I, I almost shit myself in a park run in South Manchester last year because I was drinking the night before and there was not a toilet in sight, and I I was on the verge of tears. If I could, thought I could have got away with just stopping there and doing it i would have but at least you were somewhere remote i'm giving i'm giving myself the advantage of but I, I was crying inside it was so bad but it, but it does it all come back down to this like when you're trying to do long distance running and stuff you have to really look after your stomach because yeah your stomach is what produces your energy and then you have to get that when you get ill you're starting to become dehydrated when you become dehydrated everything gets harder you don't recover as quickly so you know in the moment of the the awkwardness of having to do something on the side of the road your brain from all the experiences you've had you're like oh god it's gonna be hard for the next few days because i'm not going to get the nutrients i need yeah. i'm gonna get tired and da, da, da. So it just adds adds to the kind of mental duress of of, what, of the adventures what's the calorie burn on a typical day that must be put in the five thousand six thousands if you're running for that long minimum i think it was probably it was something like that yeah but then but then you know your your watch is telling you that's how many calories you're burning but it doesn't know that it's 40 degrees outside yeah. it doesn't know you're pushing a baby stroller um it doesn't know all the it doesn't know that you're sleeping in a tent at the end of the night not in a bed and you're like, not resting so actually bizarrely you, i normally got more rest in the tent because yeah. when i was it, when i was sleeping in the tent i had my meal was very rigid i knew what i was going to eat it'd be rice and pasta or, or um tuna and that kind of stuff and then i'd have like a little bit of chocolate to go to bed if i was in a town and staying in a hostel um you know oh. it would be burgers and coca-cola and yeah. beer and chocolate and it would just like you'd yeah. eat all the food because you kind of think i deserve all i remember when i got to mexico my mum sent me an email saying how have you run the length of america and you're fatter than when you started <laughs> just because well because you were running a marathon every day i was like yeah, it's give me cinnamon rolls, give me Coca-Cola, beer, ice cream. I can eat it all. And then my mum was like, you still have to look after yourself. And I was like, oh, ah, damn. 17,000 so, miles and you're getting a row for not being active enough. Yeah, unbelievable. The fueling bit is an interesting, uh, is an intriguing one because I'm just even thinking logistically. You can only carry so much food at a time. You must have been a fair distance between places you could pick food up. Not everywhere would have been a fully fledged town on that route so how logistically did you know in advance i'm going to have this stretch without being able to acquire more so, so i would always i would always research probably two days ahead so i'd know yeah. roughly where i could buy food on okay. that two days and if i knew it was going to be longer i'd just carry more food um but like for when i'm doing stuff in the mountains and stuff um 
I really do try to think about what food I take for these shorter ones. I try and, you know, coming back to this, like, save our outdoors, you know, I try not to use stuff that's got wrappers. Um, and I try to go high calorie natural food um, and then I remove all the wrappers and make sure everything like uh, is kind of going to be really healthy. Because I, when I see a gel wrapper, people shouldn't be taking uh, shouldn't be taking gels, but um, just eat natural food. There's a guy, I can't remember his second name for the life of me, all major marathoners will know, Ron, somebody, he's run the six world majors in one year. He was on, he was on with uh, Runderwear on a live thing on Instagram and he was speaking about the Tokyo Marathon and he said you will not find a gel wrapper anywhere, A, through the culture, the lack of littering, but also whatever they use, there's that sense of personal responsibility on it, thinking you only have to run one 10k race here and you will see water bottles and gels and, and part of the safe outdoors. We do have that responsibility to look after the terrain we run on. doesn't matter if it's a main street or a trail. Yeah. And, and I'm I'm a massive, like a, a lot of people say, you know, leave the outdoors as you find it. And I, I my personal philosophy is leave it better than you find it. Like yeah. take, it's so easy to take a bin bag with you and just pick up a little bit of extra litter. Like yeah. just have a Ziploc, Ziploc bag in your pocket. And if you see something, pick it up. And I've done walks up um, some of the main kind of tourist spots in the UK, like Penafan and all those kind of places. And the amount of litter I picked up there is just huge. And if we're going to we're going to these beautiful places, we have to preserve them for the next people because of the enjoyment we get out of it. We want everyone else to have the same enjoyment. And people don't enjoy seeing nature being ruined. Yeah. And I don't I don't think we are there yet with that in this country and the UK um, compared to. Uh, I watch people like Ethan Newberry, the ginger runner, and the trails in the Pacific Northwest. In a lot of his videos, you'll see him out with a little hacksaw or whatever, and they're cutting out tree roots and moving them. They're actually taking care of the landscape, and just that, they're making it better for the runner behind them. Whereas if you drive the North Coast 500 in Scotland, you're going to see disposed of fires, and like or poorly disposed of fires and litter, and it's, it's not great. Yeah. It's not great, but I think we, like, it's very easy to compare to other places. Um, we are we have so few places we can go outdoors in the UK, and there are so many of us, and everyone has the right to be there and enjoy it. Yeah, I think with COVID and stuff like that, and this mental health movement and everything, people are going into the outdoors without the knowledge. And it's not I don't we can't blame people. It's just they don't know what to do. They don't know that if you have a fire, it's going to cause a problem. They don't know that if you throw a tangerine peel or like a banana peel will take two years to to kind of to do its thing. You know, they just don't and they don't understand things. And that's why it's amazing when you've got people like Runners Knee and you've got Cotswold Outdoor who are putting together research to show people what the places that they love could look like if we carry on living like we're living. And it's not when they're not telling you off they're not telling you not to go they're not telling you like it's nothing like that it's this is how you do it responsibly yeah and you know if you see someone doing it wrong educate them like it's all through education yeah. um and we should be promoting everyone to go to the outdoors and like the problem is that instagram and all this kind of stuff is saying go to the top of mount snowden so everyone goes to the top of Mount Snowden. And obviously, if thousands of people are there, it's going to get degraded. And people are then going to start walking off the tracks and they're going to create new tracks, which of course this. And then people who don't know understand about wild camping will be camping in the wrong places and all this. And 
if we tell people like you don't just have to go here go over there like the mountain next door is just as beautiful it just is happens to be not quite as high like that's yeah. the only difference so like go different places respect it and just um just learn the really simple lessons and the knowledge is there it's great that with your platform you can spread those types of messages that is it it's education you don't know what you don't know nobody knows anything when about something they've never started before that online side of things and the documenting of obviously you were inexperienced in that in the beginning or I, that was never really your mission actually to document the trip is that something that's changed as you've moved through um yes and i did when i got back from running marriage i looked at the videos it was basically lots of videos of me looking at a camera going hi yeah so i've just done this thing and then start a story and not complete it and all this kind of stuff and it wasn't my aim at that point i then have you know to like i loved when i was doing the heyju trail hiking i created a 20 part series 10 episode 10 minute episodes 20 parts i loved making that i loved the filming of it i loved the creative side i loved the editing um the fact that no one watches it you know that's by the by um but like the videos have actually had really good comments on like climbing Aconcagua people like I like the educational part of it they like oh my god so that's the food you use that's how you did that that's how you overcome that oh I didn't think about doing that and cycling across Australia like people like want to see it I find running I do running because I love running I do the adventures because I love the adventures the filming is a side thing so if I'm in a moment and I am running across Iceland and it's fantastic i am not going to stop set up a camera run past it go back pick up the camera carry i'm not going to do that so obviously i paid to be there it's my money i want to enjoy it if i can make a nice film out of it i will make a nice film out of it and i'll share it but i selfishly when i back and i do little short ones i make that for other people when i'm on an adventure it's for me i pay for it. it's my hot my reward it's my happy time but yeah so you're so good at this that you've actually answered something I was going to ask you about with that because what you've done in the community that you're in, you're you're well known in that adventure running community, but that's a that's quite a niche community relative to the number of runners out there. These are one of one type adventures. To me, your account is one where you're not going to see another version of it on Instagram anywhere. Yet your follower account relative to some people and i'm thinking about the people that might go to the top of snowden or go to the top of like well-worn tracks and they're generating hundreds of thousands of clicks and views and likes and i i see a paradox coming through your work of the love of running versus i don't actually love content creation but it's almost a necessary evil is it something that you have made your peace with that in order to do the commercial part that's going to fund more of what you want to do you're going to have to keep doing that. Would you do away with social, your own social media side of it if you could? Or is it something that you're going to love a bit more? I think it's a tool that you can learn how to you get enjoyment out of making creation for it. So like a lot of people are doing the runs and doing the stuff and making the videos because they want to be, they want the reaction. They want the likes, they want the clicks and that's what they're getting. Mine's not like that. But having said that, the more I do stuff, the more people tell me that they find things useful, the more it is my job. So I, it's great to be able to go into these rankings, but it is a job. There is a responsibility. Um, and with that responsibility, there are bonuses, like being able to work with Runners Need and Cosmo yeah. Idol, telling people how to look after the environment. Like if I had to make a film about that, that's great. Like I made yeah. a video about how to how to poo in the wild. Like if people, yeah. people don't know how to do that. So I, I actually enjoy making those films. They're fun. And like, 
Um, and I will, like I, I said, I don't like setting cameras and running past. My next running adventure, I will probably document really, I'll probably put that front and just because it's a really cool adventure. It's like, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but 750 to 800 kilometers with a massive amount of up and down. It's going to be solo, maybe with mild support just for like food drops. Um, but that's the interesting. I was having a talk about a friend about that, about unsupported and supported. It's like, like if you post your food to a place and pick it up, that's unsupported. But if you get someone to deliver it to a place, you'll come supported. It's like, it's the same thing. So I don't care. I don't do first. I don't do records. I just, I do it for the fun. The Three Peaks was a first. I know. I didn't know that until uh, like a year afterwards, but someone sent me a message saying, um, I'm going to try and break your record. And I was like, record are you talking? I don't even I didn't even have one. But um and then I just told him I was like, here's all my running, this is my route, this yeah. is where I stayed, like go smash it because I don't care. I think your profile, that type of profile, should have, could have, should have hundreds of thousands of people watching it, but there is a bit of your nature uh, through this conversation where you're saying, Why do people want to watch me doing X, Y, and Z? When actually I do want to watch you doing it because I'm never going to do that stuff ever. And I'm never yeah, going to no. see that desert unless you're running through it, or I'm going. I'm only going to watch it in a film or a TV. You're bringing something different. I I, I get a bit of that self conscious bit. I'm like, why am I promoting this? I, this is for me. But other the reaction to this has been, we want more of this. Or so I, some, I think sometimes we need to get outside our own head and just present what we present because it's so interesting. Yes. Not just educational, but I've I've really enjoyed the deep dive over the last couple of days of the environments you're in and just your personality coming through. So I hope that bit does continue. I hope that's something that grows with your adventuring, whatever it holds moving forward. Well, I am writing a book and I'm going to write, I've got another book planned. And the the first book is like, oh, I did this run. And that's what it's going to be because I've written it. Um, the second book is going to be more of like the into the mind side of it. I've just got to work out how much I want to to, to bear. But the problem is, you know, with all this kind of stuff, the, the desire to have all the fault and all that and the, the benefits that come with that is that like quite a lot of what I do is because I'm trying to prove to myself that I'm good enough to do it yeah so therefore you're not promoting it because you don't you're like it's a weird like I'm doing this to prove to myself that I can do it which therefore means you don't think that you should be promoting that you'd like and and you have to normalize everything you're doing yeah if you go on an adventure thinking I am amazing because I'm doing this thing then that's the, then you can you know, promote that stuff and you see people doing that yeah but i'm not i'm just a normal dude like because this and and i want like all the stuff i do i firmly believe that anyone else can do yeah um if they have the time and they you know have the right kit and they have the right training and they have the right nutrition and they have the right mindset anyone can do it but that, but, um, but you've got that scottish bit that's the most scottish thing i think i've found about you so far you have that bit of we don't shout about what we do we just do it. and yeah. But this is why I speak regularly on this podcast about the benefits of running together for people and the number of people that say, I would love to run with other people, but I'm not good enough. I'm not a good enough runner to join a running club. The perception that everybody else somehow is great at it. It's like, no. I love it when you speak to people and they go, oh, no, I get really tired after like two, three Ks. It's like, I get really tired after two, three Ks. But if you push through the two, three Ks, your body gets used to it and then it becomes easier. Like you're running. Of course, it's going to be tiring. Um, but yeah. people just don't know that that's normal. And, yeah. you know, and and it's like anything in life. If you want to be good at running, you just have to put some work in. I'm not sure you get to that conversation. I get tired after 2K, but I just do another 16,998 and then I'm... 
<laughs> then I'm fine. Leave it to me. Leave it to the 5K brigade. I watched your TED talk in Edinburgh. That's mm-hmm. quite a cool moment there, quite a daunting thing. Is that Was that the beginning of the public speaking journey or had you already been on that road before? No, I'd actually been on that road before. I kind of got back from running the Americas and I went straight on to Marathon Talk, like uh, the podcast Marathon Talk. I I was on their podcast while I was running and then I came back and I did a talk for them. And then that led to doing another couple of talks. But getting up, so the TED Talk was in front of like 600 people in the massive hole in Edinburgh University. That was daunting. As I could see your eyes like scanning the room. It looked like a quite a big hole. Uh, that was that was scary. And you know, again, like it's one of those things you just have to learn. No one wants you to fail when you get up on stage and talk. They want to hear what you're going to say, and yeah. you're just trying to learn that. I still get massively nervous now when I get up on stage. I take yeah. rescue remedy, um, but you know, it's just because it's that initial. It's like with the run. It's that initial section is difficult. And then you realize that the audience are with you and then you relax and then you start telling stories. Then you start telling jokes. Then you start, I, yeah. I start running around like an idiot on stage and like yeah. re, re kind of replaying these moments of, and it's enjoyable, but yeah. So yeah, the Ted talk was the kind of, I think probably was a kicker to do more talks. Yeah. It, was, it, it looked like a, a pretty cool experience to do. I mean, I've spoken in big rooms as well. It's always nerve wracking, but your personality comes through in it and you relax into it. Usually it's done by then and you're thinking, oh, I wish I'd started feeling as relaxed yeah. as you finished. Um, but you asked a question in that uh, along the lines of why do you do or for whom do you do what you do? And that question, yeah. has that changed? Everything I do now is trying to be, make myself happy. And I don't, I, I think my disposition maybe not always to to allow myself to be happy and sometimes I surround myself with people who don't make me as happy but I'd say at the moment I'm working with cool people I love working with Runners Need, Cosmo Light Door and some of the other brands that help me out and stuff like they're just really cool people yeah and then just surround yourself with positive people who are going to give you positive affirmation then you do it you enjoy it more because it's a weird one so the running, the adventuring, the stuff that people go, oh, you must be really like mentally strong. That's easy. That's really, for me, I find that easy. It's the being at home in between the adventures. That's the difficult part of life. That's the yeah. bit where your mind, your mind can wander. The mind questions things. Um, you watch your bank balance go down. And you're like, oh my God, what am I doing? Like, um, yeah. so I'm not planning for the future and da, da, da. but yeah. you know you learn and you adapt and you kind of you refine and there was a very interesting bit when you were in the Andes and I was watching and on your first overnight there you slept for like 10 or 11 hours or something in the tent having said that you'd had like insomnia for the the nights preceding it because you were worried about real life you I think what yeah. you said is I had wi-fi and financial crap back home yeah yeah I had to get my car MOT'd I think it yeah. was yeah, stuff it, like that. Yeah, it's a, and there's a see the fulfillment that you get from not even just the big adventures, but just the running. Is, does that get harder to get the more you do? Do you have to keep pushing to extremes to get the same fulfillment, or can you find that in a run and a moment now? Well, I think originally it was I had to go bigger, 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 bigger. Um, as I've got older, let's say more sensible and less like I still want to do the big things. I, I'm really gunning for this adventure this summer because I think it's going to be amazing. I now have to, when I go hiking, I have to pack a backpack, which is 
good for running and I have to wear shoes that I can hike and run in because if I go up a mountain, I'll run down it. I yeah. love, love running down mountains. So I can still get that buzz. Um, yeah. But I think as you get older, you have to look for the buzz in other things. So like helping people like online, if people DM me and ask me like kit choices and stuff, um, you get a buzz out of that. You get a buzz out of filming. Then as you get older, you like start creating the, the the adventures you've done and you learn how to tell those stories. And yeah. so I am still seeking that buzz, but I'm in a, in a kind of conscious realization that I'm going to have to find that buzz from other places um as i as i get older now i've got bike packing i can bike pack till i'm 80 so um there's always going to be that ability to but running now i've done and if if you add all the training up 50 60 70 thousand kilometers of running probably in my lifetime i'm very lucky my knees are still going the ankle was a i i did something to it it wasn't my body um so hopefully i'll be able to carry on um Hopefully going for a run this afternoon. And when will you be in the position to share with the world what the next adventure is? I just want to get I just want to get a few more miles into my ankle just to make sure that I'm confident. I don't like saying I'm going to do stuff and then not do it. I had that with Mongolia. I was going to run the length of Mongolia. I had it was after I'd done the ankle injury and then I twisted my ankle two weeks before going out there. I didn't run for two weeks. I went out to to Madagascar. And then I got all the way to the start at vast expense because of this sense of having to do it. And then I went for a 5K run and I couldn't run with a bad ankle. And I that was without the backpack. And I was like, so I don't want to put myself in that position yeah. again. The devastation so of it all. Yeah, no, I understand that. Yeah. I do understand that. And that was a great one because well, was in that in that moment, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to let everyone down. And my big brother was like, no, you're not. Everyone understands. Just shut up. Just yeah. do what's best for you. Um, and, and it was one of those realizations like, people are not watching you. They are like, they'll watch you when you're doing something, but they don't judge you. Um, you'll get, there'll be a few annoying people online, but apart from that, just do what's the right thing. Do the, And I've, I've got a real sense of safety now, like everything I do now, if I think it's going to hurt me, if I think it's going to be stupid, I think it's going to promote the wrong thing. I won't do it. I'll just back off and not yeah. feel guilt. So. Uh, that's that's good. There's a lot of learning, obviously that takes experience as well, but there's there's something to be learned from everybody on that the online world particularly. People don't care. Yeah. They don't really care. They will look at your fleeting moments and move on with their day, but they don't really care. And that's not in a bad way. It's just we all yeah. care about our own mess and our own head it's and our own nature. life. Yeah, yeah, of course it is. This has been a fantastic opportunity for me and I'm so grateful to get the chance to speak to you about your adventures, about your partnership with Runners Need and Cotswolds. At the end of the Press Plane Run podcast, I usually just do a quick fire round with guests. So this is just off the cuff, first thoughts. Don't take too long thinking about it. And then I'm going to ask you to pick your one song for the playlist. One song you couldn't be doing without in your training. All right. So the first one is favourite running shoe of all time. Um, Hocus Speaker. Favorite training route. Training route. Um. Oh, I loved running around Richmond Park. Oh, I've been there before. That's a great park to run. Around. That was where I did my marathon training. So it was like that first big long run. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There in Bushy Park. That's two that I love running around. They're great. Best running related book or podcast you've read or listened to. This podcast. Um. <laughs> uh, Correct answer, but I'm not uh, accepting. Uh, um running book i don't really read books about running adventurer uh, anything any best book that's related to what you do 
um would be and i'll get laughed at for this by ben vogel i love the ben vogel um tra- atlantic crossing one but um that's just because it's a world i don't understand remember nobody cares nobody will laugh at you yeah <laughs> proudest running moment proudest running moment was uh finishing the cape wrath ultra in third place having run 200 kilometers with a bad uh twisted ankle was also the most stupid thing i ever did well, that may answer my next one because I was going to say worst race or running experience. Worst race or running experience would, uh, oh my God, which one? There's been so many races that have been bad. I wish, I, sorry, I wish the Leeward Marathon, I wish I had better um, nutrition and hydration because I struggled my way around such a beautiful track just because I was ill-prepared. The, this one is usually the ultimate post-marathon refuel meal or drink, but I'm going to ask you the, the ultimate post-adventure meal. What's that one thing at the end of all those days running that you crave or what's the proper treat for you to eat or drink at the end of such a big block of running? Apart from beer, um, I would say the thing I think about most when I'm running is Jaffa cakes. Beer and Jaffa cakes, is that's that's almost like two of your five a day in Scotland. Yeah, that's done. <laughs> Best ever single piece of running advice you've been given or could give? Um, don't compare yourself to other runners. Love that. Have you ever done a park run? I have indeed, Bushy Park. And that... numerous other ones. But So favourite park run is usually the question. So favourite park run? Yeah, I'd say Bushy Park. I loved it. Finish this sentence. I press play and run because... It makes me feel good. Brilliant. Final thing is on the Press Play and Run uh, podcast, we have a playlist on Spotify. So each of my guests picks one track they couldn't do without. Never really comes out of their rotation when they're running or training. So I'm going to ask you what your track would be. It's Queen. Um, and I just forgot, is it Breakthrough? Is one I wake up, I feel just fine. Your face feels like mine. That one. And I was running across Iceland and that song came on and i was running past a volcano it was like day three or four and i was just screaming it at the top <laughs> of my voice and i now like i listened to it probably 10 times that day uh, i now every time i need just to be a pickup when i'm on an adventure that's the song i put on it just like i'm singing at the top of my voice when that comes on amazing Brilliant. Um, and you're the first so, person that's had the confidence to actually sing the song that they're picking. So, and I can't sing. So. Well, if you think for a minute I'm cutting that out, you're absolutely wrong. You're going to have to double check the title because there's two Queen songs that got such close names and I can never remember which one it is. Uh, and my phone just died, so I couldn't look it up. I'll check it up because from that I'll check the lyrics and I'll, I'll put it in the playlist at yeah. the end. Jamie, all that's left for me to do is to thank you for your time. I'm so appreciative of you giving up that time to speak to us today. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to follow your journey. I will be linking your profile. I will be linking to your adventures, your YouTube, for people to go and check out. And I can't urge them enough to follow um, and, and watch out for what's next. It's inspiring, apart from sounding borderline English. I love everything about what I see. <laughs> <laughs> So Thank all the best. Very much for... no, all the very best with whatever's next and we'll be watching. Fantastic. Thank you very much.
Thank you to you, the listeners, for joining us for another episode of the Press Play and Run podcast. You can really help to support the podcast by subscribing or following on your podcast platform of choice and by leaving a review. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Press Play and Run Podcast and to add the Press Play and Run playlist on Spotify. We'll be back every two weeks with new episodes and please be sure to keep an eye on our Instagram page to find out which guests will be joining us. Until then, keep getting the trainers on, press play and run.